0: we're going to be continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to study the entire chapter today because it's hard to separate them into chunks. So I'm going to be doing a couple of things, two major emphases for today, just so that you'll know in this sermon for today. I'm excited to dive into it because even though it can be controversial, we're doing a deep dive into two specific issues that Paul addresses here, and I think it's going to become crystal clear what he had in mind based on our unpacking from context what Paul is saying to us today. And so we need not fear this either, even though it can be controversial. It shouldn't be, and it won't be after we've gotten done with our study today. So I think it's going to be helpful for all of us, because it is a little bit more lengthy. I'm going to go ahead and read our way all the way through the passage so that we have that in context. Because I won't have time to go through absolutely every verse by verse, but I'm going to do a few things that will show you some summaries that will help us identify what Paul's talking about, and then we're going to deal with those two tricky issues that he raises for us today. So let's listen to this whole chapter, and I'm going to ask all of you who may come from a slightly different background, and you might start to think, well, wait a minute, where is he headed with this particular verse, especially when we get to the part about women keeping silent in church, I want you to just try not to get too up in the pictures yet, because we're going to look at that, and we're going to see what Paul has to say about it. I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised, and I think you're going to be affirmed that God knew exactly what he was talking about when he was inspiring Paul to write this particular part of his letter to the church in Corinth. So here it is, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, entire chapter, verses 1 through 40. Paul says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Remember that we just looked last week at chapter 13, which was the love chapter, so that's a good segue from that. He's been building up to this chapter all the way through 12 and 13, telling us all about how we need to be more concerned about others than of ourselves, and that it should be always motivated by love. So then he takes us into this chapter. Follow the way of love, eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Notice that he puts that right up front. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the spirit, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you're praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you're saying? You're giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue brothers and sisters, stop thinking like little children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but unbelievers. This is the verse that's going to get tricky. So Grab a hold of this verse, set it aside for a minute, think about it. We're going to unpack it in this message today. Tongues, then, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. We're going to have to look at what kind of sign is he talking about. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction or revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Seems like he's repeating that point, doesn't he? Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. In other words, take turns. Hmm. Verse 31, for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission. As the law says, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. That's the second passage that I want you to sort of sit to the side for a minute, and then we're going to unpack that one too. So tongues and prophecies, and then this one about the women keeping quiet. Those two are our main points of contention, and we're going to clarify them both today. Verse 36. Or did the word of God originate with you? Rhetorical question implies, no, of course not. Or are you the only people it has reached? Of course not. If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the spirit, let them acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but... Everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Let's pray. Father, your inspired apostle, Paul, has given us something really meaty to chew on in this passage. And I pray for clarity and wisdom. I pray that your Holy Spirit will do exactly what Paul's been talking about, so that as I'm prophesying today by forth telling the truth from your word, helping to acknowledge that you're the one who inspired it, so it must be true, and trusting your Holy Spirit to guide us into truth so that when we get to that truth, there's that collective aha in our spirits because there's a yes that matches the yes in your spirit. I pray that that will be happening today as we unpack this meaty and helpful passage. And I pray that ultimately all of us as believers will be able to do the things that Paul is talking about so that the result will be hearers of the gospel who are cut to the quick by your Holy Spirit, who repent, who accept your forgiveness and salvation, and who say, surely God is among those people. That's what we want most. And that's what Paul's talking about today. So I pray that that will all come to pass as we look into your word. Thank you. In Jesus name. Amen. So We're going to take this passage, but we're going to talk about the second issue first, and you know why? Because as I was a younger person in college and I started reading through this passage, I got stuck on verse 22, and I couldn't unwrap my mind from around that particular issue so that I could really concentrate on that first batch. Maybe that's a little ADD in me, but also I think that there's sort of a red flag word. It's it's a hot button that Paul is pushing there. So I just want us to dive right into this thing first and say, what is this crazy talk about women being silent in church? (laughs) What is Paul talking about? It's verses 34 and 35. So let's look at that first. Then that's gonna help provide a lot of the context we need to be able to understand the first couple of issues, which is the importance of prophecy over tongues. And that's why he arrives with the very last portion of his chapter telling us what his fix is for that context, context, context. How many times have you heard me say that in just talking about 1 Corinthians as we've been making our way through there? It's kind of like in real estate, you know, the one big word there is location, 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 location. Well, context, in a sense, really is location of a thought. And where we have that thought, what's around it is a part of the immediate context, and we're going to look at that. Also, there may be some other kinds of contexts in their location. What did he say at the very beginning of his letter and is he building up to something so that we have a little slightly broader context there as we broaden out our lens a little bit, pull out for a broader look. And then also, especially if there's a quote, which (laughs) ha Paul has given us one, a good Old Testament quote, we need to dive into that and say, what does that quote have to say about that? And another good context clue for us. If we're going to be good rightly dividers of the word of truth, people who are learning to read it for ourselves in context and allow the Holy Spirit to guide us to some good solid truth for the gospel's sake, we need to ask, is there something that sticks out like a sore thumb and appears to be different than all the rest of the verses? If so, that's a good thing because that ought to be a clue for us. That's what we need to find out. What's different about that? And that's what we're going to do today. So Paul's concerns, as we know, throughout the context and the broader context of his letter, chapter 14, he's been addressing over and over again the different divisions within the church in Corinth. It was not a good thing. They were dysfunctional, and he was correcting them. So fortunately, we have some good corrective measures here, some good rebukes, but in a good way, because he's showing us what the church should look like if we're filled with the Spirit and exercising the gifts of the Spirit with the fruit of the Spirit. And then he's talking about this disorderly and sometimes disruptive conduct. He's going to get even more real about that in a couple of his other letters, and I'm going to mention one of them from Timothy today. And then we also see constantly a thread coming in here, one of the subtexts of paganism that was infiltrating the church. And he was trying to make sure that he was addressing those issues as well, because that was a part of the division starting to break the church apart. There were some things from the world Trying to creep into even their worship practices, and that's going to take uh, effect here with what he's talking about, especially even with the women being silent in church. That's going to come to bear there too. So that's some of the context that we need to keep in mind as we find out what do you mean, Paul, by what you said in in that part about the women being silent. First of all, you need to know, and this is good, (laughs) this is a good thing, especially ladies whom I appreciate, what this passage is not. If somebody were to grab this passage, especially and rip out a couple of verses apart from all that other context, and if they were to say this passage means that we should tell the women to shut their mouths while they're in church, they would be wrong. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying that at all, and we're gonna see why. Why would we say that? Well, because even just a little bit earlier, we see in chapter 11, verse 5, Paul had also written to the church in Corinth, same group of people, but every woman who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. He was addressing one issue about the dishonoring by having either a short hair or shorn hair, uh, bald, because that had to do with some of that paganism. Because of Aphrodite and the temple worship and people who were doing that, including temple prostitution, those temple prostitutes would have shaved heads. He said, you don't want to even appear like you're a part of some of the stuff that's going on over there in the temple that's doing pagan worship. So there was all that. If you want uh, a little further information about that, you can go back to about October something and find one of those passages when I went into a whole lot more detail about that. But he's saying that he's assuming that women are praying and prophesying in church. So he's not saying in chapter 14 that he's reversing his decision and now telling them that they need to be quiet. So we need to find out, well, what does he mean when he says be quiet then? Well, this did happen in church. If somebody somebody were to say, well, maybe in that earlier one, he was meaning that as they were praying and prophesying in their own homes. No, that's not the case because he says in chapter 11, it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. So he's assuming that he's addressing an audience where women are praying and prophesying in corporate gatherings as a church. That's just what he's doing, so that it gives us some context, again, from his own passage in chapter 11. October 25th, there it is. I put a note for myself to remind you. If you want to look back on our YouTube channel, and just type in Living Water Community Church, Um, October 25th, Ypsilanti, if that helps you find it, uh, that's probably going to get you where you need to be. Or you can go on our website and look for messages, and we've got a YouTube channel link to get to that there. So if you're looking for more detail about that, that'll get you filled in and caught up. So what's going on in this passage? Why would Paul say that it's okay for women to participate in worship in one place, but in another, tell them to remain silent? Remember, we've got all this pagan influence creeping into the church. We had the pagan creep, as I mentioned it, not meaning a person, but the activity of creeping in. Silence versus speechless is important. There's one word here that's different in how he's couching it. What we see is that in chapter 14, which we just read, he's asking them to remain silent. The word for that in Greek means silent related to this specific incident that he's talking about. It doesn't mean speechless, which means that you never utter a word, but according to Paul, using this specific word, which is different from speechless, when we see back in 12.2, where he said that people were being led astray to speechless or mute idols, which can't utter any words. They're worthless in communicating anything. He hasn't said that. He's told us in chapter 11 that the women were valuable as they pray and prophesy. God had gifted them. Paul, who had met with Lydia, The seller of purple, who was very instrumental in helping start the new churches in Asia Minor. We had Phoebe, uh, who was described by him with the word diakonos, deacon, same word, there wasn't even a gender difference there. He considered them co-equal in terms of their value for what they were contributing to those local churches at the time. We see that straight out of scripture from the book of Acts and some other places in Paul's writings to different uh, locations. So if women were valuable that way, he's not telling them that they need to be speechless or to say nothing while they're at church. He's saying they need to be silent, and we need to find out, okay, silent about what or when, because if they're not supposed to be silent at church for the whole time they're there, there must be something specific about that, and you'd be right. There is something specific. The real problem that he's addressing, not discouraging women participating in worship, He was discouraging women who were disrupting the gathered body of believers by advocating for pagan practices and doctrine that was contrary to or opposed to the gospel. That's a statement that sort of coalesces all the different things we've been talking about in our previous context from chapters 1 all the way up to and through chapter 13. Then we can also see some other writings that he's been uh, giving us because of some other churches that he wrote to, especially when he was writing to Timothy. That's what the real problem was. There were some women in that time who were being used almost as pawns in a chess game, we might uh, say, by some people who had differences with Paul. But they were preying on these women by trying to convince them to come along board with some of their ideas that they were still borrowing from pagan practices because the pagans who were being converted still had some of that holdover from their previous lifestyle. And they were trying to urge those women to speak up and to advocate for this paganism. And Paul says, no, you you shouldn't do that. We need to do this orderly. The kinds of people who say they've got a word and stand up and interrupt everything that's going on, and that word doesn't match the gospel, that's disruptive. And it's keeping people, especially if there's a visitor that day, an inquirer, as he mentioned it, and they came in wanting to know the truth about the gospel, and you're coming in with this nonsense about paganism that interrupts everything. How is that going to be beneficial? Well, it's not, and that's the problem. So he dealt with some other disruptive people. We know that because he's written several times about some of these folks. Sometimes there were people like the Judaizers. And they were the legalists who would be coming on board, and they would sometimes stir up trouble, and they would even follow him on occasion from one town to the next so that they could start to disrupt him and stir up trouble by speaking to other people that Paul had been trying to minister to. They were trying to disrupt Paul because they thought that Paul was being too lax in allowing Gentiles to come in without demanding that the Gentiles do all the things that the Jews were doing according to the letter of the law. That's why they had the Council of Jerusalem. We spoke about that last week. So he's saying some people, Paul says, may contradict our teaching, our meaning the other apostles, because they were in agreement about what they were speaking about with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ at the heart of the gospel, that which was of first importance to Paul. Such a person, he says, has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. That may have been some of the things that were happening that were creating disruptions that Paul's referring to they would stand up and start to question the meaning of words and get into a real philosophic discussion about something which was distracting distracting and detracting from what Paul was trying to accomplish as they were prophesying or forthtelling about the gospel and the real uh, definitions that related to the fulfilled prophecies from the Old Testament because most of the prophecy that happens in the New Testament we see is not necessarily prophecy about future events but it's forthtelling about how all the prophecies in the Old Testament came true in the person of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He's saying this kind of unhealthy desire to quibble stirs up arguments, ending in jealousy and division and slander and evil suspicions. I've mentioned to you before that some of our elders encountered such an event that happened in Haiti. And it happened when a a visiting pastor who had not been a part of our training earlier on with those pastors, came and stood up and started trying to show them that from his interpretation, which by the way was a wrong interpretation of a specific passage, that he was trying to force his opinion on these other pastors. And we couldn't understand it because it was in a different language. Fortunately, we had a translator there, Pastor Prediston, but the other pastors started arguing and they started speaking all over one another and it was cacophony. And it scared us to death <laughs> because, you know, we're not used to that style of uh, cultural context where they're used to just talking with each other that way and duking it out verbally. But when somebody was trying to whisper to Pastor, Pastor Predestan and to say, do you think we need to move on and can we get past this argument? Pastor Predestan wisely said in his culture and his cultural uh, experience, he said, sometimes you need to listen long enough to know what it is you're, you need to correct. And we thought, oh, that, yeah, that makes sense. That's really wise. And he did. And he was listening carefully. They were asking enough questions to find out what this guy meant and where he was coming from. And it was wise that they did, because once they identified it and they clearly were able to map it out and they thought, okay, now we know what we're dealing with. Then one by one, they were doing exactly what Paul was talking about. They started prophesying by opening their Bibles, and they were forth telling the Word. They were speaking the truth from God's Word to this other person who had come in to infiltrate and who was speaking falsely about his interpretation. And they corrected him forcefully from the Word, and they did so one by one. And then when they were done, the other one would sit down, another person would stand up, and he would say, yes, and if we can see in this passage, this says this. So they were using the Scriptures to comment on scriptures because that was the best context to show him that he was wrong. And they silenced him. He sat down. He didn't give any more trouble for that day. He didn't come back the next day as I recall. But they were kind to him. They weren't rude, but they were trying to make sure that the Bible wasn't gonna get twisted by somebody who had a different notion. That's exactly what was happening in these worship services with Paul, which is why he's attacking that and asking these specific women particularly to remain silent and not do that kind of behavior. I was grateful that God gave us that chance to have a glimpse into another culture, because I think that he was giving us a personal experience so that we would know what Paul was feeling and what he was dealing with back then in first century Corinth. There were these disruptive people. Paul writes about them in first Timothy. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt. They have turned their backs on the truth. So it seems like the more angry they get, the more disruptive they become because they've just made it a crusade to prove that we are wrong and they're right. And that's their agenda. Paul says, that's what we want to avoid. These people preyed on vulnerable women. And this is really to their detriment for these Judaizers and for the pagan leaders who were coming in looking for people who might have appeared eager to jump on the bandwagon with the nearest wind of doctrine somebody who would jump on something that they would think, oh, this is new and kind of exciting. I think I'm going to grab hold of that. They were looking for people who were vulnerable. He says, Paul, they are the kind who work their way into people's homes and win the confidence of vulnerable women. He speaks about that specifically, women. Such women are forever following new teachings. So I can assume, based on his words to Timothy, that's the kind of woman he's speaking about back here in First Corinthians. They would be the people who had been preyed on. They were starting to buy into some new, exciting idea, and they were wanting to ask questions or put forth as an advocate of these new ideas in that corporate worship time together. This still happens today. Joy and I, this is years ago now. We hadn't been married all all that long, and I was minister of music in a church in South Phoenix, and we got word that a few of our younger families, just about uh, three families, as I recall, it's been years, so don't quote me on the specifics, but they were going to some meetings uh, on some weekday evenings in a barn on somebody's property in a ranch just outside of South Phoenix, and there was an itinerant speaker there who was sort of a self-proclaimed prophet and evangelist. Um, He didn't have any credentials, He hadn't been to Bible school, hadn't been to seminary. He didn't have any formal training that we were aware of. Nobody had mentioned any of that. He hadn't offered any. He didn't seem to have any covering of authority by a church that had ordained him. So I I kind of get the impression that he was sort of a self-proclaimed apostle and that somehow God had gifted him in a unique way and that he was able to share all these new wonderful teachings based on what God had revealed to him specifically, even though it didn't match a lot of what other people in mainline denominations or people who had been reading the scriptures a lot longer than he had, he just come up to the idea that the Spirit had gifted him with the ability to see new things in scripture that other people hadn't seen. Some of those things, as we started hearing about them secondhand, really bothered me. There were some big red flags because I thought, he's holding his word of prophecy as equal to scripture, and that's scary because when he says, oh, well, God told me this morning this," and people are accepting that as being God's authoritative word, even though he's not gone into scripture to affirm that his prophecy is correct or not, then he can start believing his own words, whether or not the scripture validates that. And then finally, something happened that really started to scare a few people, and it it started to break up this little growing gathering of people, because it was growing significantly, because they thought that he was a real miracle worker. He had this great fiery, passionate, charismatic personality, and people were drawn to that, but at one of those meetings, somebody had a sick horse because they were on a ranch, and this guy said, oh, you don't need to trust in the people like veterinarians. That's worldly science, and you don't need to trust that. He said, we need to pray for this horse. Now, I don't mind praying. I think that's great. We need to be praying, but sometimes God shows us that he can Not only help us pray for his divine healing, and if he wants to do that, he can, but he's also gifted us with some wonderful people. We have one in our church who's a Christian physician. He's an agent of God's healing, and he's used the knowledge and experience and schooling, a lot of years of schooling, to try to help become an agent of healing. Ultimately, all the glory goes to God for every healing, but sometimes there are earthly agents that help us with that. But this guy was saying to this person on the ranch, don't take your horse to a vet. We're going to lay hands on this horse and God's going to have the victory today. The horse died. And that pulled the rug out from underneath some of the people's faith in his teaching because he was so confident that God was going to bring about this miracle And so one by one, these families started trickling away from the itinerant preacher, and the word started to spread around the region where he was becoming kind of famous. And interestingly enough, he kind of took off and went to another town somewhere shortly after that. It wasn't borne out by the truthfulness of his prophecy. Now, in the Bible, false prophets were dealt with very harshly. And I don't know how God dealt with this guy. But what I do know is that for about six months, several of the churches, a handful of churches in the South Phoenix area, really suffered because of his teaching. And we had to do a lot of rebuilding into people's lives and to try to help them through scriptures like the ones we've been studying from 1 Corinthians to understand more about going to God's word first, getting the context for how we interpret, and not to just trust that because we feel something, it's got to be true. This is something that can certainly still happen today, which is why this is such a relevant passage, and I'm grateful that Paul wrote that all the way in in the first century. Paul's intent, this is his purpose, for God is not a God of disorder but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. This has also been taken out of context at times. His specific intent in this passage is because of people who would come into a congregation and start stirring up trouble because of their advocacy for things that were detracting from the gospel. That's the context for Paul's words here. He's not a God of disorder. He doesn't want people coming in and having worship services that are actually pulling away from the gospel, but that are actually more confusing than clarifying. He wants us to be clear in hearing the prophecies from God's word about God and about the gospel. So his aim, Christ-like character, gospel-focused, not creating chaos and confusion, but having clarity, resulting in wonderful transformation because the Holy Spirit convicts people, transforms them into new creations in Christ. That's Paul's intent. It always is. Everything Paul does (laughs) points to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Mm -hmm. All right. The first issue, second. Now, we tackled the thing about the women being silent. Do you understand where that's coming from now? I hope you feel much better about that. And I want to say how grateful I am to God for the gifted women we have at Living Water Community Church and the wonderful ways that you exercise your spiritual gifts because it's born out in the fruit that's born from your ministry in so many ways. And so I don't want you to think for a minute that we're saying that you should remain silent when we're gathered together for worship. Just don't raise some things that are advocacy for pagan worship, okay? I'd be okay with that if you would just hold off. a bit. Okay, first issue, second. Let's go back up and find out what does Paul mean in verse 22, because this one appears to be quite different. That's one of the context questions that I mentioned earlier. That should jump out at us. If something appears to be way out of context and jumps out like a sore thumb, we need to find out. So here's this little uh, song that we can sing sometimes when we see this. It it comes from Sesame Street, the early days when our kids were young. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. Sing with me now. Okay. Verses 1 through 21 is a whole list of stuff there. And Paul is saying tongues are ineffective for public gatherings. Prophecy much more highly effective. I mean, he starts right off the bat by saying prophecy is supreme to tongues. He doesn't forbid tongues, but he's trying to elevate prophecy above tongues, and he does so because, he says in verses 23 through 25, tongues are confusing for unbelievers. It's like a foreign language. If I go to a foreign country like we do to Haiti when we're training pastors, it's a foreign language. It's literally foreign, and I can't understand what's going on. So, we need to make sure that if we're going to prophesy meaning that we're forth telling the truth about the gospel it needs to be clear convicting and transformative and tongues can't do that so in all of that then all of a sudden he gets to 22 which is sandwiched in the middle and he says oh almost sounds like a reversal now can you imagine what kind of a bible scholar we would be if we grabbed verse 22 grabbed our scissors snipped out verse 22 pulled it away from all the other stuff and said oh well i get it then Tongues must be a positive witness to unbelievers, and that's what's going to lead them to faith in Christ. Can we get that from all those other verses that are huge and take up a whole page in small print in my Bible? Yeah, I don't think that's really good uh, exegesis. I don't think that's a real scholarly approach, so we need to figure out what is Paul saying if it sounds like he sort of reversed himself based on all the other stuff he's been giving us to this point. It's up to us as Bible scholars to see one verse that appears on the surface to be different from the others to find out, okay, why is that? Let's do a little investigative work here because it's not that hard. Context is available for us. We don't have to step way outside what the Bible already shows us, and I'm going to show you how we can do that today. Aren't you excited about that? If you're excited to dive in and find out how to be a great, mature Bible scholar, say amen. All right, good for you. It's fun to imagine what's going on in your living room or your kitchen table, but uh, I appreciate that. I almost felt like I could hear you all the way over here. (laughs) So Paul says prophecy above tongues. And let me just give you these little highlighted statements about that rather than reading all the way through those verses again. Okay. Tongues help people communicate with God, but not with other people. It's a communication. That's a real personal kind of situation there. Prophecy. On the other hand, this is in contrast to tongues, communicates with people and results in strengthening, encouraging, and comforting those people. Those who speak in tongues edify themselves. He doesn't say that's a bad thing, but it's very personally oriented. In contrast to that, those who prophesy edify the entire church. And as we have seen all the way through chapters 12 and 13, everything we do from the gifts God gives us should be to edify the entire church. And then we also see that tongues are valid. He doesn't invalidate them and say, oh, no, you can't have any more tongues. In fact, he even says, I wish everybody spoke in tongues like I do. He said, I speak in tongues more than all of you. However, and then he brings it back to his main point again, he would rather have them prophesy for the reasons just mentioned above. Tongues are not clearly understood. Prophecy is clearly understood. Try to excel in the gifts that build up the entire church, not just individuals. Tongues are individualistic. Prophecy is collective. You see, he keeps going back and forth and back and forth to say, prophecy superior to tongues. I think we're getting it, Paul. Spiritually mature people, he says, build others up. They're not only concerned about themselves. This is crucial. This is really key in verse 20, because it goes all the way back to the very beginning of the very first chapter when Paul is starting to address the divisions that were built up among the church members in Corinth. There were some spiritually immature people creating a ruckus in Corinth because they were so concerned about power and control. Interesting note here, The stuff that I have seen, including that situation I mentioned in Arizona, where it was the itinerant self-proclaimed apostle, he was more interested in power and control and money for himself than he was about literally building up congregations. He didn't have his own congregation. He had a whole bunch of people coming to a barn to give him money in offerings that he was using to pat his own pockets, and he created more disruption and disorder than order And so I can see that prophecy above tongues is a big deal to Paul based on what he was seeing in Corinth starting all the way back at the very beginning of chapter 14. Verse 22, what's happening here? He says, tongues then are a sign, aha, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. It almost sounds like, and some people have actually tried to put this forward and I don't believe it's true. They would say, well, if he is... Uh, saying this thing to a secretary, an iminuensis, and he is dictating that to this iminuensis. Maybe the iminuensis couldn't keep up with Paul, and he got it backwards, and he just wrote it wrong. Well, that would mean that there's a big mistake in the Bible, and we don't believe that happened, because we believe this is divinely inspired, and that he got it right. So I've scratched that one off the list. We can't say, no, this is just a mistake, and we have to flip those back around again so they fit. No, we don't do that. Why? Because he's given us another clue to be good Bible scholars. He didn't make a mistake. We need to look at context. His quote from Isaiah, bum, 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 that's key. When somebody in the New Testament, especially an apostle quotes from the Old Testament, oh man, that ought to be something like just dangling a carrot to a good Bible scholar. And we need to follow that carrot all the way to the Old Testament to see what the context from the Old Testament is, because that's gonna give us a big clue. And Paul has done it for us. Paul is rebuking these people sharply for disorderly and confusing conduct. That's his context within this whole passage, right? Then he's rebuking them for building themselves up personally, looking for self-aggrandizement, power, uh, control, all those issues that were part of this Corinthian church. And then he throws in this quote from the Old Testament. (laughs) Are you ready for the light bulb moment? I, I thought so. 1 Corinthians 14, begins with, therefore. <laughs> I love these therefores. What comes just before 22 to show what the therefore is there for? Here comes. Drum roll. <laughs> I will speak to my own people through strange languages and through the lips of foreigners. Now, if you stop there, you could still make the argument that tongues is a good thing and is assigned to unbelievers. But that's not where he stops. But even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And when you see a thus saith the Lord, oh, buddy, you better pay attention. And there's one here, because this is from the prophet. And he says, thus saith the Lord, I'm going to do everything I can, because God had tried to get Israel's attention over and over and over again. He'd sent prophet after prophet. They weren't treated really well. And Israel kept stiffening its neck and hardening its heart and turning away from God. And yet God was relentless because he's just that persistent in trying to give us his love and his plan of redemption, which came true in the person of Jesus Christ eventually. He says, but I'm going to even go so far as to speak to my own people through strange languages and through the lips of foreigners. But even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Aha, gives us some more context. You know what happened? because of this Old Testament prophecy, we're seeing that it's not a good sign. And Paul says this tongues is a sign. Yeah, it's not a good sign. They were taken into captivity. Israel was taken into captivity and they found themselves surrounded by people who, guess what? They spoke in different languages. This is a sign of God's judgment and of his discipline. And so when there's a lack of discipline, That's what Paul is relating this to. He's saying, when you guys are just coming together to build yourselves up and to do whatever feels great, and you think, yeah, but I'm being built up, so that's all that matters. (laughs) I don't care if some newcomer comes in and they don't hear the gospel clearly, because I feel like I've had a great worship experience today. He's saying, yeah, that's a sign. It's a sign of God's judgment. And you're going to bring yourself under judgment for forbidding somebody to hear clearly the gospel. That's not a good thing. The Old Testament context, again, here's the full quote from Isaiah. With foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people, to whom he said, this is the resting place. Let the weary rest. And this is the place of repose. He's trying to give them a promise that if you will listen to my word and heed it and do what I've asked you to do, you're going to find rest in me. You're going to find a place of repose. But what happened to them? They would not listen. Isn't it interesting that Paul comes all the way back to this, puts that out there to show them that as he's trying to show them how they need to listen to one another carefully, trust each other, trust God's word, exercise their spiritual gifts from the motive of love, but all for the purpose of having a clearly expressed gospel message. That it's almost like he's saying, And you guys probably won't listen to me either because some of you are going to miss what I've been saying to you, even though I I spent a whole chapter on it. (laughs) And you're going to still do your own thing because you're not listening to God. You're not getting it. It's not all about you. When you come together as a congregation, you disappears. And it's all about we. It's all about the body of Christ edifying one another, lifting up Jesus Christ, pointing the newcomers and the inquirers to the gospel of Christ, because that's the only thing that's going to save them. And tongues, Paul says in this passage, is not going to do that. It's only going to edify you individually. And if you keep persisting in that by doing so with cacophony and making it uncontrolled in such a way that the unbeliever comes in and looks at you doing that and says, man, these people must be crazy, then you're bringing yourself under judgment and you're doing the same thing that the children of Israel were doing all the way back then when Isaiah wrote that. So God had tried many times to communicate with Israel. They wouldn't hear it. He had to bring discipline upon them. So when we say in verse uh, 22, we're seeing now that that's not a good thing when he says it's a sign speaking in tongues of verse 22, it's a bad sign. In fact, it's a sign of God's judgment. Paul doesn't want believers in Corinth to bring themselves under judgment because they're responsible for holding somebody else back from the gospel. But he doesn't want that newcomer or inquirer to come in and see that and walk out and think, oh, these Christians are nuts. (laughs) And then that person goes away and never hears the gospel again, and they're lost. So there's judgment upon them as well. It's not a good thing. Paul is pretty strong about how he feels about this particular issue. Paul's next words, immediate context. Now, he has started to do something which he tends to do. He'll show a big, huge bunch of contrasts back and forth, prophecy tongues, prophecy tongues, prophecy tongues, and then he argues from the converse, which he's done for us right there by pointing to the Old Testament. So he's arguing from the negative perspective. So at the tail end of that then, If we understand that he's still from the negative, we ought to be expecting something, probably an argument from the negative side of this coin also happening here. He says, so if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? So that's not a good thing, that's a negative thing. They're hindering a clear presentation of God's word by creating confusion. Now, what would happen if you were on a basketball team and your team was really good, and you felt like, man, I just love playing basketball. It makes me feel alive when I'm playing basketball, but when you got together, instead of playing a game that was orderly according to some rules, you were all just dribbling all over the court, and you were just winging that ball, throwing it as far as you could, say, watch this half-court shot, yeah, and all the stuff that there didn't seem to be any purpose to what you were doing. It was just a mishmash of players just winging the ball as hard as they could. And you say, what are you doing there? What's the purpose of this? And he goes, oh, I feel so alive when I'm doing a half court shot. Man, when I'm just throwing that ball with all my energy, I just feel so connected to basketball. I know, but yeah, but what's the point? Well, I just feel alive. Okay. They might think this is weird. I thought maybe you're gonna show me how I could play basketball better or show me how to be a part of a team or something, but this just feels kind of strange to me. Basketball for me, you see what happens when Paul starts to make it real to them that what they're doing is hindering the very people who need to come in and hear a clear presentation of the gospel so that they can become part of the team. It's not all of just coming together and thinking I feel so alive. It's good that we feel alive, we should, But the real purpose that Paul has in mind that's greater than all those purposes is to clearly proclaim the truth of the gospel. That's where prophecy comes in. So contrasting the immediate context, we see something coming into play here as good Bible scholars. If an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, in contrast with tongues, they are convicted of sin and they are brought under judgment. Because if you have one person at a time speaking like we saw in Haiti, where one person used the scripture to prophesy truth, he was forth the truth from God's word, and then somebody else said, yes, I resonate with that. In fact, that makes me think of this verse. We see that a lot in our growth encounters. That's one of the best places where we see prophecy happening in modern churches today, small enough groups where people can do that without feeling like we're hindering a larger group experience. We had that happen even this morning. Stephen Pike was giving us a good teaching about King David. And when he asks a good question and people weigh in from that, they can say, yes, it reminds me of such and such. They're prophesying when they're doing that, if they're bringing the word to bear in affirming in one another what God is revealing to all of us. That's what Paul means in this specific passage. And that's what we try to do as a New Testament church. He said they're brought under judgment because the word really gets into their heart. So what's the result of chaotic tongues? It's like basketball players just winging the ball everywhere. It's confusion. What's the result of clear prophecy? Conversion. The Holy Spirit grabs us, a person by the heart, shows them where they are sinning, causes them to want to repent from that because they're remorseful and they say, oh, I, I need forgiveness. And then they ask for that forgiveness and then they're brought into a new family of faith with other believers. So what about... What about part B? Because that can be a little bit confusing as well. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. Oh man, Paul. Come on, buddy. Here we go again. Did you mean to say it the other way around? No. Remember, we're still stuck in that little tiny insertion between these two big chunks of passages where Paul starts to use a negative context. He's arguing from the negative perspective. So what does he mean by that? We're about to find out. Part B. There's a it becomes more apparent if you look at this in uh, Strong's Concordance, and you see how it's mapped out there, because you see some things pictorially, even though I can't read the Greek words that are there, you can see them almost like a puzzle piece. There's something missing in part B of that verse. There's a sign, which is an authentication. He's saying, so this is a sign, tongues is a sign, but remember, it's the negative sign, because he's arguing from the negative. Prophecy is a gift. The word itself means it's referring to the gift of prophecy. It's the ability for somebody to foretell authentically the word of God. So what's missing then? If we say tongues then are a sign, we know now that it's a negative sign. And then the second part, prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers. What's missing there? The word sign. Prophecy The gift is not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now, I have this large print Bible, which I use for weddings and other things where I have to read publicly. It's the NASB, New American Standard Version. It's the only one, and there's one other obscure translation that actually says something about prophecy is a sign then. I think they got it wrong in the translation. Now, it can still work because the sign, which is for believers, shows that when somebody's heart is piqued by the Holy Spirit, When somebody is pierced to the marrow by the Holy Spirit and truth, and they become a new creation in Christ, that's a sign to the believer that what they were doing is indeed from God. So in that sense, it is a sign, but the word is not there. I look up 20 other translations, and it's not there. So tongues are a negative sign of God's judgment and his discipline. Prophecy, however, the gift itself is not for unbelievers because they can't prophesy because they don't know God yet. They don't have the Holy Spirit revealing to them the truth from God's word. But prophecy as a gift is for believers. I think that resonated with me. And the light went off above my head, and uh, it was so bright, I had to put sunglasses on. So the word sign doesn't appear in that second half of verse 22. Prophecy, the gift, is not for unbelievers but for believers. I think that makes the most sense to me. And it falls right in line with all the other context uh, from the beginning of chapter 14, but especially all the way through chapter 14 itself. So then that brings Paul to his really practical instruction as he's gonna bring this all to conclusion because he's a real good exhorter. He wants to encourage them to do the right thing practically. He says, so, okay, sure, you need prophecy. So two or three at most of these prophets, that's good. You can speak, but don't talk over one another. Don't turn this into a free-for-all. One at a time, please. If you hear something that resonates with you, wait till that person has finished. They can sit down. You can stand up, making sure that we're not talking over each other. Do it orderly, like we saw in Haiti. And then two or three at most may speak in tongues, but it's got to have an interpretation there. If somebody's just speaking in tongues and they're edifying themselves, but nobody's around and they're just listening to this babble, maybe it's another language, maybe it's glossolalia, the language of heaven, the language of angels, but if nobody's there to interpret it, how do they know? How do they even know what's going on? He says, so if there's no interpretation, just keep it to yourself. You can pray in tongues silently and still be in communication with God, and you can be self-edified, but don't create confusion with that. So he doesn't forbid it, But he says do it orderly. Use that as your prayer language if there's no interpretation present at that time. That's okay. You won't be missing out because the main thing is people will be hearing prophecy. Hopefully it will result in conversion. God is a God of order and peace, and that's specifically what he's talking about here for the purpose of the gospel. So here's some final words from Paul. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Share God's word clearly, unmistakably with other people so that they can hear the gospel. And don't forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. The result of orderly worship that edifies everyone is that people will say what he mentioned in that other part of this same chapter, wow, God is really among you. We can tell that God is here. That's how my wife Joy found the church for us when we lived in New York for one year. I was speaking in a different church because I wasn't a pastor at that time. I was leading a parachurch organization, but she attended a Wednesday night prayer meeting at the Terrytown Conservative Baptist Church. And she came back and when I got home and she got home, she said, I think I found where God is hanging out in New York. She had found a small group of people who were doing these things and doing it well. And she said, God is really among those people. It was obvious, it was evident. And that's what we want. We want people to see what we're doing and to say, God really is working among you. He's hanging out with you guys because you guys believe this stuff. It's real to you. God makes a difference and you're making a difference because God is in you and he is being expressed through you. So let's pray for God to reveal himself through our worship and through our daily worship, because everything we do for him is an act of worship so that those who witness it may say, God is really among you. Let's pray together. Father, this has been a tricky passage, and it has continued to baffle some people, but I'm grateful that it doesn't have to baffle us. You are clearly communicating God, and you have made it clear to us through your very word what you have in mind, and I pray that this will have struck a good nerve in us, That your Holy Spirit will have resonated that, yes, I see what he means now. This makes sense to me. And I pray that we will all get on board with your word, that we'll be edifying others and not only looking out for ourselves, not only trying to co opt your power through some spiritual gifts because it makes us feel good, but that everything we do should be done in order so that other people can come to know you. Because we want as many people as possible to know you as we do, so that eventually we'll have this great reunion when it's your time to usher in the final chapter of your great plan. And I thank you that you're going to do that, that when you return again, you're going to be triumphant, and so many others, so many others, because of our worship of you, will be drawn into that wonderful presence, and they'll join us forever in eternity because of your salvation, which comes through Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray, and all God's people said. it.